Thank you for listening to the Proclaim Church Sermon Podcast. Proclaim's mission is to make Jesus known through gospel-centered worship, community, and mission. For regular meeting times, more information about our beliefs, or other information, check us out at proclaimkc.org. Genesis 2:24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's uh, start with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to get together. Um, thank you for uh, providing a place for us to do that. And pray that um, you keep us warm as we gather, uh, but most of all, uh, Lord, I pray that um, as we come together to worship you and to be reminded of the gospel, that you would encourage us, that you'd spur us on um, in your love. Lord, that you'd spur us on, that we would spur each other on in good deeds. And God, as we look at these verses in Genesis 2, I know that there um, are many of us who have been impacted by uh, the, the effects of sin on marriage. God, I, I pray that you would build us up uh, in your word to know what it is, how it is that you designed marriage to be, that you would also remind us of your grace in that you redeem even the, the most uh, difficult circumstance. We thank you and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, I'd encourage you, uh, I'd encourage you to, that's, that was a weird way to start that sentence. I would encourage you to encourage someone. Um, as Amanda said, uh, we... We uh, are in a year of discouragement a lot of times, and how wonderful would it be to be encouraged? So if you would grab a postcard back there as you're leaving and, and write a note to whoever the, the Lord puts on your heart to do that to, I think it would be a beneficial thing. Apparently, Amanda wants a few, so if you want to take her, that'd be good. She likes getting things in the mail. Um, So there are things you do when you're a teenager that you end up regretting to varying degrees, right? I think we can all, uh, all of us who have lived through our teenage years can attest to the fact that there are things that you, you did uh, during that season that to varying degrees you wish you hadn't done. Some of those things hurt in the moment, others hurt more down the road, but but. You'd, you'd wish you, you hadn't. And one, one thing that hurt more in the moment than it did later on for me happened in middle school. See, I was at a friend's house, and uh, there, I had a particular friend in middle school and early high school that I would go to his house, and oftentimes we were very uh, unsupervised in our activities there. And we were hanging out that day, summer day, and it was incredibly dry out, I remember. It hadn't rained in a long time. And his family had a tendency to not necessarily uh, upkeep uh, things around their house really well. And so um, they had not uh, mowed close to the house, like, you know, in the corners 
And you, you know, sometimes you're like, I don't want to get the weed whacker out. And so it starts to kind of grow up a little bit higher. Like for me, sometimes that happens. Like I'll skip one and it's like a couple inches higher than anywhere else. Well, for them, they had skipped like the entire summer. And it was like three feet tall, four feet tall, all around the side of their house. And we were out on the side of their house and we were um, doing what middle school boys often do, uh, playing with fire, right? That's, that's what you do. And he had an old dog dish that was just sitting out in the yard because some random things sat out in the yard. And there was an old like aluminum dog dish that was there and we had found the gasoline. Um, and his parents weren't home, obviously. Uh, and we had poured the gasoline in the dog dish and thrown a match in and it was, you know, on fire, right? And it was on fire for a little bit. And suddenly, um, the fire leaps out of this dog dish and into this dry grass. And in that moment, in those, you know, you know those moments in your life where there's like two seconds and it feels like five minutes as your brain like processes what's happening? Like that was one of those moments for me and I said, I thought, okay, dog dish, fire, tall, dry grass, fire, house, fire. Now, I will say, not very much before that, we had had a friend whose brother had burned down their house because he was playing with candles in his room and he lit the curtains on fire and it lit the house on fire. And, and um, actually, m- me and that friend had actually gone like, oh, look, there's a f- house on fire. Let's go find out. And we walked and we're like, oh, that's our friend's house. Dang it. Um, so I, my mind like immediately went there because of current events. And so I thought, oh my goodness, what am I gonna do? And in the moment, in that flash of a second, right, the best decision that I thought I could make is to flip this dog dish over and smother the fire. And, you know, in retrospect, my shoe probably would have been a better mode for that. Um, but I reached down and I just tapped it, just, just knocked it over I me, mean, touched it for just a split second, flipped the dog dish over, and it worked. It, it put the fire out. Um, and I learned something that day. I learned that putting your hand in a bowl of aloe vera doesn't help when you have like significant burns on your hand. That's what I learned. I learned a lot of things that day. But, um, but I burned my hand pretty bad. In fact, you can still see some scars from that particular episode. You see, one of the things that I really truly did learn is that fire can be a really awesome thing when it's rightly contained, right? Can be incredibly dangerous when it's not. I love, I love that in the winter, as it's getting colder outside, I love that, that I can light a fire in my fireplace or we can have a fire in this little heater here and it can warm up the space. I love that I can have a fire in my house, but I just prefer it to be in the fireplace not everywhere else, right? I'd prefer the smoke to go up the chimney and the heat to come out the front and the fire to stay right in there. Properly constrained, fire can, uh, properly constraining a fire can actually make the fire better, not worse. In 1934, an Oxford social anthropologist by the name of J.D. Unwin published Um, basically his life's work in a book entitled Sex and Culture. Now, I haven't read all 600 pages of his research, but, you know, that would take a while. 
In that, he looked at 86 different societies and civilizations, and he looked at the correlation between the, the way in which they viewed sexual relationships and cultural development. And what he found was that the more a civilization moves towards chastity before marriage and absolute monogamy in marriage, the more that that civilization flourished over time. And the more that it moved towards sexual freedom, you can call it that, the civilization disintegrated and would eventually collapse every single time. Over 5,000 years of civilizations. Now that's quite remarkable for someone's life's work, but I could have saved him a little bit of time and a little bit of energy because there's a book that already says that. It's called the Bible. And it said it since the very beginning. In Genesis 2, 24 and 25. As we look at the world that God designed pre-sin, we see a world that is designed for human flourishing. And within that world that is designed for human flourishing, we find committed, monogamous marriages. Adam and Eve. But marriage has been so distorted and this distortion has crept so much even into the church that we've lost sight of God's design. And if, and if God designed the world for human flourishing and he designed marriage in that world, then, then what is his design for marriage? And the answer we're going to find is, is this. God's design for marriage is that one man, is one man and one woman covenanted for God's glory. God's design for marriage is one man and one woman covenanted for God's glory. And I want to explore each part of that this morning, and I want to talk about some possible exceptions, that the, uh, some potential exceptions that the Bible has as well. So let me start with this first bit of the definition. The first part of our answer is pretty straightforward. One man and one woman. This is the simplest reading of verse 24 in our text. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. But I think there's a little bit more here that we could explore in the context of this passage. If we look back at verse 18, if you would look back a couple of verses with me, at verse 18, it says, Then the Lord said, It is not good for man that, man that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. You see, in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates things and he calls them good, right? Good in this context is meant to describe what is appropriate and fitting within God's purpose for his creation. So good, by the definition here, is that is appropriate and fitting within my creation. That's what God says. So God's pronouncement of man's aloneness being not good means that man by himself is not fulfilling God's planned purpose. Adam alone can't get the job done. Adam alone won't do. And this is by God's decision. Note, not Adam's decision. It's not like Adam went up to God and was like, hey, I'm kind of lonely. Could you like, like take something out of my side and make like an Eve for me? That'd be fantastic. No, it's God that said this. So God makes this promise, right? He says, I will make a helper suitable for him. The term helper, it doesn't mean less than. In fact, 
The term helper is used later on in the Old Testament for God in how he helped Israel by his covenant that he makes with them in fulfillment of his covenant that he makes with Israel. So no one would say that God is less than Israel. Rather, the term helper is simply pointing out that this person is filling the gap that's needed for Adam. It's providing what is lacking. And the term helper is uh, qualified by this phrase, fit for him. The helper is fit for him. The Hebrew word literally means like opposite him, which is strange. Like opposite him. This helper will be like him, but not identical to him. Not the exact same. Rather, this helper will correspond to him, will complement him. Man and woman are equal in that they both bear God's image, but they are different in ways that correspond and complement one another, physically, emotionally, relationally. And those differences are good. In fact, those differences are essential. Those differences are God's design. But God doesn't immediately make a love connection here, does he? You see in the text, in an unexpected turn, God takes Adam, and he parades all the animals before man, one by one. And Adam names each one in turn. Why? Like, what a strange thing to do at this point. In between, when he says, I'll make a helper suitable for him, and when he actually creates Eve, he, he has this scene of parading all these animals in front of Adam. Why is that? Well, I think the text actually gives us the clue, look, look with me, at the end of verse 18 and at the beginning of verse, or at the end of verse 20, at the, at the end of verse 18 and the end of verse 20, bracketing this scene of all the animals parading in front of Adam, we see the same phrase written, a helper fit for him. I think that's pointing us to God's purpose. You see, God is demonstrating clearly for Adam and for us as the readers of this text that there was at that time no other creature in all of creation that would fit the bill for Adam. Imagine with me the tension as it mounts. God has promised to Adam, I'm going to make a helper suitable for you. And he goes out and he begins to look at these animals one by one, and, it, and he names them. So he's looking at them you know, fairly closely, and nope, not it. 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 All the animals from A to Z, I don't know if they did it in alphabetical order or not, but just you know, stick with me. Uh, all the animals. Imagine how the tension mounts for Adam. You promised me, and there's not anything here for me. Is it this one? Nope, that's not it. So God puts him to sleep. And he fashions woman from man's side. And when Adam wakes up, after what had to be days of naming animals, he wakes up and he sees her. He comes face to face and he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Put that on your Valentine's Day card this year, guys, right? 
But understand, it seems odd to us, but understand what he's saying. He's saying, I've seen all the other creatures. I named every single one of them. But this, this woman, she isn't like all of them. Now that I see her, I understand. I get it. I get what God was doing. I see why the others wouldn't do. She is absolutely perfect for me. Wow. Silas thinks that's funny. Here's here's the point. Here's the point of this, this part of the text. Marriage is to be heterosexual and monogamous. That's God's design, period. So is there any exceptions here? Like, like if a man thinks a man would be a better helper, it would be more suitable for him, or a woman believes that a woman would be more, a better helper, if a person feels like, hey, like, I really need a lot of help. I could use a few helpers. <laughs> like, is that okay? Let me be clear. Let me be clear. Biblically, there, there is no exception here. God could have created several Eves. He could have created another Adam, but he didn't because only Eve was good for Adam. Some might say, well, Jesus never directly says anything against polygamy or homosexuality. He doesn't doesn't say straight out, hey, guys, polygamy and homosexuality is wrong. End of sentence. The reason that he doesn't say that, I want you to understand the reason he doesn't say that is because no Jew among whom Jesus was preaching and teaching would have ever even considered either polygamy or homosexuality as being okay. It it wasn't even a question. He never had to say it directly because if he had said it directly, everyone would be like, why are you even saying that? Of course. I want you to understand that that was the culture in which Jesus lived which he preached. It would have been unthinkable. And for believers, it's been unthinkable for 2,000 years. But that doesn't mean Jesus didn't say anything. In Matthew 19, 4 through 5, Jesus assumes heterosexual monogamous relationships as God's design for marriage. Let me read this to you. He says... Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? You see, here's why that response is so significant. Repeatedly throughout Jesus's ministry, when passages in in an Old Testament law was misunderstood and taken out of context and the heart of it was lost by the teachers of the law, he would very directly and very clearly correct them, very clearly, when it came up. In fact, that's what he's doing right here in regards to divorce. And he would point them back to the point of the text, the point of the law. And if, and if ever he had an opportunity to say something like, actually, guys, you've missed the heart of it. It's totally okay to be homosexual as long as you stay committed, etc." This was his moment, but he didn't. He didn't say that. In fact, he doubles down on the fact that God's design is one man and one woman for life. 
Now, I understand that that opinion is not popular, is becoming less popular in our culture, but I want you to understand, church, that the Bible doesn't leave any doubt in that reality. And it leads me right into the second part of God's design. That it's one man and one woman covenanted. Now, that is to say, marriage is a covenant between a husband and a wife. Now, what's a covenant? It's not a word we often use today. Biblically, a covenant is a mutual agreement between two parties that binds them together and usually includes certain promises and stipulations, certain privileges and certain responsibilities. So when Adam says in verse 23, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, what he is saying there, he's using covenant language. He's saying, in essence, even though, even though we are not a family in the sense of, you know, being blood-related at that point, we are connected in that way. We are bound together like family. Adam is pledging and promising his loyalty and commitment to her. Central to, Christian, to a Christian understanding of marriage is this covenant-style commitment. And I think this has been lost in a large way even within the church, in our culture. Marriage isn't about personal or even mutual fulfillment. It's about fulfilling the covenant. If the goal of marriage for you is to be loved and to feel loved, then ultimately, I want you to understand, ultimately, you will likely destroy that love because... Love, by definition, is unselfish. And what you're saying is, I need this. I must have this. That is a selfish motivation. But if your goal is to keep loving the other person, then you will create the best possible opportunity for love to not just continue, but to grow. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian, he said it like this in a letter to a young couple who had just been married. He wrote, it is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage, it's the marriage, it's the promise, it's the commitment, it's the covenant that sustains the love. You see, longevity in marriage necessitates a foundation based not on feelings of passion or affection for one another, as great as those things are, and they are, but in a commitment to the covenant you make to one another before God. It may start with affection for that person, but it, it can't stay there. Because what happens in the days that follow? What happens when that person is a different person than the one you married? What happens in a year or in 10 years or in a week after your wedding and that person is a different person and they will be and you'll be different?
What happens when you don't seem like your soulmates anymore, when it doesn't feel like you aren't meant for one another anymore? What happens then? But here's the crazy reality. Love drives you to make that commitment, but it's the commitment then, it's that covenant commitment that feeds the fuel, that fuels the fire of love. It is the promise that you make and your commitment to that promise that fuels the love and enhances it and makes that affection grow larger than it even was on your wedding day. As you hold fast to that promise, you find an even greater kind of love than you could have imagined. I was just thinking the other day about a man and I being 20 and 21 years old when we got married, right? I mean, that. at the time I thought, well, of course. Of course we should get married. And now at 36, I look back and I think, we were, how, how foolish. I, I mean, I, didn't, I, don't think that from, I don't think that for me, I guess, but, but when I think about another 20, like a 20 year old that I know and I think, oh my gosh, I think, what are you doing? Right? You know so little, and I knew so little, but what I did know was this. I was making a promise, and come hell or high water, I was going to keep that promise. And as long as I held on to that, and as long as I continue to hold on to that, it fuels the love that I have for my wife. There is no plan B. There is no escape hatch. It doesn't exist. So I'm here. I better figure it out. And you need that when the hard times come. And there's a little more detail on what this looks like. Verse 24, it, said, it begins with, therefore. Therefore, because of what God did in creating a woman as a suitable helper, because of the commitment that Adam is making, man will do two things. He'll leave his family of origin and he'll hold fast to his wife. Leave is sometimes translated forsake. It's the breaking of a covenant. It means I'm breaking the, the connection that I had with my existing family, with my parents. I'm breaking that. And then I'm holding fast to, I'm, it literally means sticking or cling. I think of like the sock that's stuck to your pants after it gets out of the dryer. Right? It's stuck there. You can't get it off. This term that's used for maintaining or covenant relationship, that's what's described the result of which is two, the two shall become one flesh, it says. Let that sink in for a minute. One plus one equals one. God isn't bad at math. He invented it. A covenant was to be considered so binding that it was inseparable. And many covenants, they would actually physically represent this when they were making the covenant. Get, stick with me. They would take an animal and they would split the animal long ways down the middle and they would lay the halves out. And then whoever the, the parties were that were making a covenant, they would walk through the middle of that split animal to represent that if we break this covenant, it's like this, this animal that's torn in two. That's what it will be like. So if you don't you know, want to do a unity candle at your wedding, there's an option. <laughs> Just don't ask me to do the wedding. 
This is this one flesh idea. It isn't merely about a sexual union or the kids that you conceive or, or emotional or spiritual attachments. It involves like all those things. But at the heart, it's this bond of commitment to one another. So are there any exceptions here? Well, the Bible does give us two possible exceptions. In Matthew 19, 9, Jesus says that on the grounds of adultery, one may be divorced. Basically, what he's saying is when someone commits adultery, they have broken that covenant. The person who has been sinned against, the spouse has been sinned against, has the freedom then to walk away. However, I want to make sure that you understand that this doesn't mean that adultery should automatically or necessarily be end, an end to a marriage. It shouldn't necessarily end in divorce. God's heart is always for reconciliation. God's heart is always for unity. Sometimes when an adulterous spouse refuses to repent, refuses to turn from their sin, refuses to be reconciled, Non-adulterous spouse has to walk away, and that's, they're not to be held responsible for that. Another exception comes in 1 Corinthians seven fifteen, where Paul is talking about what to do when one spouse becomes a Christian and the other spouse remains an unbeliever. And the Bible is clear, a Christian ought not to get married to a non-believer. But what if they're already married and one becomes a believer and the other is still an unbeliever. Paul says in that case, stay married. The believing spouse is in the best possible solution or best possible uh, uh, scenario, best possible circumstance to represent the gospel to the unbelieving spouse and to share Christ with them. However, if the non-believing spouse no longer wants to be married because the other spouse is now a believer and that changes their life and how they act and what they do. Then the believing spouse is released from that and free to remarry. Now, I want to be clear. Even though there are exceptions, God's design isn't for covenants to end. And there's going to be damage. Let me illustrate it this way. I was doing a woodworking project. And oftentimes when you're doing a woodworking project, you put something together, uh, when you put in the two, these two pieces of wood together, you will um, glue the wood and then you'll screw the wood together, right? Both to create the strongest possible bond between the two things. And so I was doing that and I realized that I had done something wrong and I needed to change it, but I'd already glued it together. But it had only been maybe, I don't know, 20 minutes, a half an hour. And so I thought maybe I can get these things apart. And so I took the screws out and, and I went to take the two pieces of wood apart and like the whole thing went up, right? Like I lifted the whole thing up because it was already stuck together pretty well. And I'm like, oh crud, what am I gonna do? And so I'm carefully trying to kind of pry and pull these two pieces apart. And when I finally get the one board to come off of the other board, what do I find? Anyone who's done a woodworking project and isn't very good at it like me knows little bits of one board is still stuck, had torn off and it's still stuck to the other board, right? When a marriage ends in divorce, no matter the circumstances, this is what happens. Bits will forever be stuck to one another. Bits will forever be torn off of one another. 
when two people live in a marriage-like relationship, even if they don't actually get married, but when they live as if they are married. It's like gluing two boards together without the screws. Or when two people lack the understanding of the kind of commitment that they are making to each other when they get married. They don't truly understand what that's like. It's like gluing two boards together and, and leaving the screws kind of loose. Lack the stability and the pressures of life come and they start to pull on those boards and statistically 50% of the time they pop apart. When people remarry, those bits will inevitably be smashed up in between the new joint. They'll cause tension and disruption in that commitment. Do you understand the picture that I'm trying to paint for you? I remember I had a friend who, whose wife left him. Came home one day and said to him, I don't love you anymore, I want a divorce. I remember sitting with him as he's crying and weeping over this and, and, and he's saying, yeah, some of my friends, friends who weren't believers, said to me, it's okay, you're still pretty young. It's, it's just like you hit the reset button on the Nintendo. You can start the game over. No, you can't. Man, I'm sorry, but you can't. And he goes, I know. They don't get it, but I know it. There's no reset button. This will always be with me. But Christ can redeem it. But Christ can redeem it. Guys, the point is this. Marriage is a promise kept for life. And I want you to understand, and I want to speak to something just for a second here. Especially men, but this is becoming a growing problem with women as well. I want you to understand that when you view pornography... It is, is a breaking of that covenant. And you are creating little bits that are torn apart that will be shrapnel disrupting your marriage and your relationship with your wife. I want you to understand that. That even if you do it in private, even if you think this doesn't affect anyone else, it does. It does. It's damage to your marriage. It's damage to your family. It's damage to your church. Marriage is a promise kept for life. And I know that for some of you guys, that promise hasn't been kept in different ways. We fail but I want you to know that God doesn't. When he makes promises, he keeps him. And one of his promises is that if we turn from our sin and we seek forgiveness, he will forgive always and completely. And there'll still be consequences and there'll still be scars, but his grace is sufficient in filling those areas that were torn. And he can transform our hearts in places where we've done damage and 
He finds what's lost that we can't find and he redeems what's broken. And so if you've messed this up in the past, I want you to know there's hope in Christ. Let that hope lead you towards God's design in the future. And that leads us to this last part. God's design for marriage is one man and one woman covenanted for God's glory. Verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were unashamed. They're they were physically naked, yes, but it doesn't just stop there. It goes beyond that. There was no guilt. There was no shame. There was no reason for either of them. They were completely comfortable with one another, with no reason for awkwardness, with no reason for conflict between each other. Why? Because Adam and Eve were obediently serving God together. You remember we talked about Genesis 2 as a whole, and we said, look, the point here is that we as humans are to obediently serve God. That is our purpose. And we flourish when we are serving that purpose. It's good for us. And here we see Adam and Eve obediently serving God together. And the companionship of their togetherness and the obedience that they have in serving God are two aspects of how marriage bring God glory that can't be separated. Our mutual love and submission to one another, it reflects the nature of our triune God. In our service to one another, we obediently serve God. Like when I serve my wife, I am serving God. When you serve your spouse, you are serving God in that moment. If we are striving for either of those two things, companionship or, or, or obedience in serving God, without the other, it will kill both. For instance, if, if I'm willing to damage or break my marriage covenant in the name of serving God, then I've actually been disobedient to God. If I choose to be disobedient in an attempt to gain companionship with someone, then that togetherness won't be what it's meant to be. On the other hand, when a husband and a wife are obedient together, their companionship will actually be enhanced. When a husband and wife serve God obediently together, it will enhance the companionship that they have with one another. And as their companionship is enhanced, it will actually help them to serve God better and more obediently. Now wait, you might say. What about people who aren't married? What are they to do? I think there's... There is an exception here, and I think it's a pretty big one. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9, he says this, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Paul himself was single. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So being married is great, but not necessarily, or, but not Necessary, I should say, to obediently serving God. A single person may actually be able to serve God more fully or do it better. As you can imagine, those of you who are married, marriage takes a little time and energy, right? Right? You could say that with your spouse right there. Like, you could say it takes a little time and energy. It, it should. If it's not taking time and energy for you, then we have a different conversation we need to have because it, your, your marriage is probably suffering. That time and energy for Paul was spent ministering to others. That's what God had called him to do. 
But that's not to say that, that for the single person, they're to do this completely on their own. And for both the single and the married person, living in covenant community with the body of Christ is critical in our obedient service. Sole reason we can have this kind of fellowship, whether in marriage or whether in the body of Christ, is because of Christ himself. And Christ really brings this whole picture together. And this is where I want to land the plane here. In Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, Paul connects all the dots for us. Paul explains that wives ought to submit to their husbands as to the Lord, and the husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loves the church, giving himself up for her. That Christ loved the church so much in verse 25 of Ephesians 5 that he gave himself up for her. And in verse 26, he says, so that he might sanctify her, so that he might make you, Christian, more like Christ. That's his purpose. You see, too often we're more concerned about our earthly spouse giving us what we want in that moment than our heavenly spouse, Jesus, using our earthly spouse, even in the tricky things, even if in the hard things, even in the conflicts, to produce in us what we actually truly need, holiness. You understand what God's word is saying is that you, what you need more than happiness is to be more holy. And sometimes being married makes you more holy when you're working all great together. And sometimes being married, most of the time being married makes you more holy because you aren't working very good together. Most of the time it's in the conflict when you pursue God anyways, that you're actually refined. You become more like Christ. So when your spouse isn't giving you what you want in that moment, don't look at that as a problem. Look at that as a, an opportunity that your heavenly spouse, Jesus Christ, is using to produce holiness in you, to make you more like him. And that section concludes, that whole passage concludes with, it, with a quoting of our, of our passage this morning. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, Paul says, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, marriages bring glory to God, most of all, because they actually refer back to the gospel. How God loves and saves adulterous sinners and friends in terms of our marriage to Christ. We are adulterous sinners, all of us. But he saves us through his life, death, and resurrection. And he makes us pure and spotless and holy. Our marriages as Christians should point people to gospel truth. So a few points of application for the single person, I want you to hear, Christ is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. Whether you get married eventually or not, you're not second class or impaired because you're not married. It's, it's not trite or glib to say that Christ is all you actually need. If you are married and it's going well, then what I would say to you is this, don't 
rest on that. Don't stop feeding the fire. Keep going. Keep pursuing each other. If you're married and you're in a rocky patch, I want you to know that we all experience rocky patches. Every marriage. And if our marriages are to be about God's glory, then we can admit in those rocky patches that God is often most glorified in our weaknesses, right? When we say, I can't do this, I need God's help. God wants to transform that into an opportunity to make you and your spouse more like his son. Would you allow it to be that? But you don't have to do it alone. Don't do it alone. The body of Christ is here to help. We have resources, biblical counseling, your gospel community. All these things are great opportunities to have other people help you in that. And the last person I'd like to speak to is this, the person who's secretly damaging or destroying their marriage. Maybe no one else knows what's going on right now. Confess it. Confess it. It's the first step to containing the fire. I know you think that you are keeping that fire like in check, but you're not. Confess it. Look, it'll hurt. It'll burn your hand. But you just might keep the house from burning down. God's design for marriage is one man and one woman covenanted for, for God's glory. We can and should, friends, have real concern for that. Because of the state of marriage in our culture, we should have real concern, divorce rates, domestic abuse, fatherlessness, a complete redefinition of what marriage even is. But I want you to know one thing. While our society may fall apart and friends, eventually it will end, marriage as God designed it will never change until Christ returns, period. Because it's his design. Because he's decided that it is a picture of his relationship with us as church. It's not going away. Because God promised and God keeps his promises. Let's pray. God, man, marriage is hard sometimes. You put us in these relationships that we're in for a reason. Lord, I pray that we as a church would seek you in those covenants, that we would hold fast to the promise that we made just as you hold fast to the promise that you made to us. Thank you. I pray all this in your name. Amen.